I think most of you who were here last week, but for those of you that weren't, Dr. Master was out last week and this week, um, yes, uh, Mel asked me to fill in for him. Uh, we've taken a small break from Isaiah and we're looking at the book of Micah. So let me pray and we'll get started. Father in heaven, we do thank you for gathering us uh, as your people again this morning to worship you. Uh, we ask now for your blessing on our time together. Help us uh, as we look at your word to understand it. Clearly help us to apply it by the strength of your spirit to our own lives. Uh, we pray, Lord, that we would be not only hearers of your word, but doers also. We thank you for Christ, who makes all of this possible, and we pray this in his name. Amen. I apologize up front for my voice. Our whole family had the flu earlier this week. Uh, most of us are over it, getting better, but uh, hopefully the voice holds out for our time together. Um, so as I mentioned, we are looking at the book of Micah, and... I didn't want to, um, you know, continue with where Dr. Master was at in Isaiah, but Micah obviously is related um, to the book of Isaiah, of Isaiah, as both Micah and Isaiah were prophesying at the same time. Um, we'll just do a quick recap, kind of what we talked about last week. So uh, Micah and Isaiah prophesying at the same time, uh, Isaiah primarily to the southern kingdom. Um, Micah, as we know from Micah 1.1, prophesies not only to the south, but also to the north. Um, and he prophesies judgment on both the northern and the, the southern kingdom, judgment for their sins. Uh, we talked a little bit about, about those specific sins. There was uh, religious hypocrisy, a kind of outward observance of the formal ceremonies without the, the heart uh, being close to the Lord. There was idolatry. Um, there was a lot of injustice that Micah calls out exploitation of the poor and the weak, taking their land, their houses. Uh, and then all of this stems from a failure ultimately of, of the leadership, right? The civil and the religious leadership uh, are doing these things and it's trickling down then to the rest of, of the people. Also, I did forget to mention last week, both uh, Micah and Isaiah, as Dr. Master mentioned about Isaiah, hold out uh, the northern kingdom as an example to the south of what not to do, learn from their mistakes and their sins, right? And both of them would have been prophesying um, at the time when Samaria, the capital of the northern kingdom, fell to the Assyrians in 722 BC. Um, and so I'm sure they're using that as an example of this is what's going to come uh, if you uh, continue on this road of disobeying the Lord. Um, you can see that in uh, even in the beginning, chapter 1, Micah 1, 9. Um, he says, for her wound is incurable, and it has come to Judah. It has reached to the gate of my people, to Jerusalem. Uh, and then again in 1.13. Um, Harness the steeds to the chariots, inhabitants of Lachish. It was the beginning of sin to the daughter of Zion. For in you were found the transgressions of Israel. So he's saying, same things that happened in Israel. They're happening now in Judah. Um, and also in chapter 6, verse 16, he says, For you have kept the statutes of Omri and all the works of the house of Ahab, and you have walked in their counsels, that I may make you a desolation and your inhabitants a hissing. So you shall bear the scorn of my people. So Omri and Ahab were two of the worst kings of the northern kingdom. Uh, so Micah is saying, you're, you're following their counsel. You're doing what they did. Um, and you'll be judged for it. Uh, we talked a little bit about what that judgment is going to look like, right? Um, one of the things that the Lord's going to do uh, is he is not going to hear his people when they cry for help, which is exactly what the leaders have been doing to the people, right? Um, 
they are not hearing when the, when the people are asking for help. He's going to take away the things that they are trusting in, especially those, those false gods, the idols, that will remove them. But also the things like their walls and their armies, etc., that they would rely on is going to be uh, taken from them. And then ultimately, um, he's going to bring the covenant curses that he had promised way back in 20, uh, Deuteronomy 28. Right? The land is going to be desolate. Um, the people are going to be taken away into exile. Uh, it's not a good picture at all. Um, this is the it, uh, chapter 1, verse 1, the superscription or the introduction of, of uh, Micah and his ministry. Um, first two chapters, we get judgment, and then I've got in parentheses and restoration for Israel and Judah. The restoration is just a small bit in that section. We'll see here in a minute, just two verses. Um, next, we have present injustice and the future just rule. So that's chapters 3, 4, and 5. And then, finally, the Lord's indictment and restoration of his people. Um, emphasis in most of these sections is on judgment, but again, there's always that bit of hope of forgiveness and restoration that's held out in each of these uh, different sections. So, uh, we're going to try and walk through each of these sections briefly. Uh, we've got kind of a lot to cover. I know last week we jumped around a lot to different verses. Hopefully this week will be a little more linear going through from you know, beginning to end, um, but we might move at a kind of a quick pace. Um, as we move through this, uh, you'll notice, obviously, just looking at your text, right, that this is all, pretty much all poetry. So there's a lot of figurative language. Um, things don't necessarily come in temporal order, um, same as in Isaiah, right? Uh, really, you could look at this as, as Micah giving a kind of summary of his ministry over his 20, 25, 30 years, right? This is the summary of the message that he gave to the people. And again, it boils down to there's coming judgment and there is restoration. There's a hope of a remnant that will be saved by the Lord uh, as he stays true to his covenant promises. So, any questions before we jump in? All right. <clears throat> So Micah opens, obviously, after telling us who he is uh, and what his message was, or who it was to, he announces God's punishment on Israel and Judah. So starting in Micah chapter 1, verse 2, he says, Hear, you peoples, all of you, pay attention, O earth, and all that is in it, and let the Lord God be a witness against you, the Lord from his holy temple. For behold, the Lord is coming out of his place and will come down and tread upon the high places of the earth. And the mountains will melt under him and the valleys will split open like wax before the fire, like waters poured down a steep place. All this is for the transgression of Jacob and for the sins of the house of Israel. What is the transgression of Jacob? Is it not Samaria? And what is the high place of Judah? Is it not Jerusalem? So this is not a... Uh, pleasant picture, right? This is the Lord coming in judgment. Uh, he's coming out as it is for battle, in a sense. Uh, and he's coming to to bring judgment on, on both uh, Samaria, i.e. the capital of Israel, and uh, Jerusalem, the capital of, of Judah. Um, and the first section, he deals a little bit with Israel. And then in verses 10 through 15, he's actually going to list a number of cities and these are cities that would have been close to uh, Micah's hometown of Morasheth. So they're all in the kind of southwest of Jerusalem area. 
And this is an area of uh, Judah that the Assyrians ended up taking over and occupying during Hezekiah's reign. So we talked a little bit about uh, both Hezekiah, or excuse me, both Isaiah and Micah are used by the Lord to help Hezekiah remain faithful, right? When he asks for help from the Lord and they, the Lord spares Jerusalem miraculously uh, in, I think, 701 from, um, from being taken. But the Assyrians are occupying a lot of the outlying areas around the city. Uh, and these are some of those. Uh, there's actually a whole lot of wordplay that goes on here that's really interesting, but we don't have time to look at it. Just as one example of the wordplay, if you look at verse 15, he says, I will again bring a conqueror to you, inhabitants of Merishah. The glory of Israel shall come to Adullam. The, the name Merishah and the word for conqueror, which could also mean dispossessor, actually sound very similar. Um, and it's the same word, that word for dispossessor or conqueror is the word that would have been used to speak of Israel dispossessing the Canaanites. So what the Lord is essentially saying is, you dispossessed the Canaanites because they were not, you know, they were sinful pagan peoples. I gave you this land, but you have ended up living like the Canaanites, and you will also now be dispossessed by another. Uh, there's a number of those kind of word plays going on in that section. Um, but ultimately, again, this is a picture of judgment that is coming on Israel. Um, now, in verse chapter 2, verses 1 through 11, Micah is going to call out the abuses and the abusers of God's land. So let me read the first three verses here. Uh, chapter 2, Woe to those who devise wickedness. And work evil on their beds. When the morning dawns, they perform it, because it is in the power of their hand. They covet fields, and seize them, and houses, and take them away. They oppress a man and his house, a man and his inheritance. Therefore, thus says the Lord, Behold, against this family I am devising disaster, from which you cannot remove your necks, and you shall not walk haughtily, for it will be a time of disaster. <clears throat> uh, notice the connection here, verse 3, the Lord says that I am devising disaster, and it's on those in verse 1 who are devising wickedness, right? So this is actually a very, very similar word, the wickedness and the disaster, uh, and obviously devising. So the Lord is going to bring on these people, uh, in some sense, what they've been devising or planning for, for others. Um, and I think down in verse 5, he says, and I think he's speaking specifically to these, these leaders in power. Um, notice he says that um, they perform it because it is in the power of their hand. I think he's talking especially to the leadership. And in verse 5, he says, Therefore you will have none to cast the line by lot in the assembly of the Lord. It's a reference to um, when the exiles will come back and the land will be reallotted they will have no one there, right, to stand for them uh, in order to be part of that inheritance. So I think there's a sense here in, in, of the judgment coming on the leadership in a more extreme case, right? They may not have anybody left in part of the remnant uh, because of their sins in leading the, the nation into um, rebellion against the Lord. Now, what is the response that the people are going to give to this kind of a message? Well, we see that in verse 6. 
Uh, this is what they will say. Do not preach. Thus they preach. One should not preach of such things. Disgrace will not overtake us. So they don't want to hear the message and they're not going to believe it, right? Um, instead, what is it that they want to hear? Uh, well, if you look down in um, verse 11, if a man should go about and utter wind and lies, saying, I will preach to you of wine and strong drink, he would be the preacher for this people. In other words, they don't want to hear about coming judgment. They just want to be told everything is fine. Go eat and drink and be merry, right? Um, that's, that's the kind of preacher that Micah says would be the one for them to, to give them what they want to hear. So, uh, not a good picture so far, but as I mentioned, each of these major sections, and this is the first kind of major section uh, I mentioned last week, it begins, if you look at um, the first word of, of verse 2, with the, the second person plural command to hear, Hear you people, or hear yeah, hear you peoples, all of you. Uh, that sets sets out the beginning of this section, and we're going to see that again in uh, chapter three, verse one. Same thing, but at the end of this section here, in chapter two, we get these two closing verses, twelve and thirteen. I will surely assemble all of you, O Jacob. I will gather the remnant of Israel. I will set them together like a sheep in a fold, like a flock in its pasture. A noisy multitude of men. He who opens the breach goes up before them. They break through and pass the gate, going out by it. Their king passes on before them, the Lord at their head. So we'll pause just a moment here and look at these verses. This is the first glimpse that we have of God's promise, um, ultimately to restore a remnant, right? Um, it's also the first language we get here which we'll see it again uh, as we move through of this um, idea of a shepherd king, right? language of both a, a one who shepherds the people and leads them or rules and reigns over them as a king. Uh, and you can see that clearly here, right? In verse 12, we get this language of, of a shepherd. Um, I will set them together like sheep in a fold, like a flock in its pasture. Uh, I will gather. So there's a sense of, of bringing them together for protection right? Uh, he's going to take care of them. And then in verse 13, there's this transition. He who opens the breach goes up before them. They break through and pass the gate. It's the sense of a king leading his people out through an, kind of a, you know, an encircled city, perhaps. And they're breaking out uh, from the, the siege that they have. Um, and then it says explicitly, their king passes on before them. And notice who it is that's the king. It's the Lord himself, right? It's not some human king that is going to lead them. Uh, so just the, the glimpse there that there is a, a message of hope uh, and forgiveness and rescue and deliverance behind all of these judgments, behind all these promises of, of desolation and exile and covenant curses coming on them, the Lord will in the end preserve his people and will preserve uh, his covenant that he has made. All right, questions so far in the first couple of chapters? Okay, so moving into chapters 3, 4, and 5. This is a little bit bigger section. <clears throat> and again, we're going to see some similar themes, right? Um, it's that repetition 
uh, and with different, slightly different pictures, but also uh, similar languages in some places, similar words. Um, so again, chapter three starts with here, you heads of Jacob, right? Uh, and here, Micah is going to uh, denounce the present leaders of the nation. Um, he's going to talk about the abuse of power in a little bit more detail. And we'll see in verses 1 through 4, there's judgment on their civil leaders. And then in 5 through 8, there is judgment on the prophets. And I said, hear you heads of Jacob and rulers of the house of Israel, is it not for you to know justice, you who hate the good and love the evil, who tear the skin from off my people and their flesh from off their bones, who eat the flesh of my people and flay their skin from off them and break their bones in pieces and chop them up like meat in a pot, like flesh in a cauldron? Horrible pictures, right, of, of the way that they're treating the people, not literally, but in a figurative sense, they're cannibalizing them, really. Um, then they will cry to the Lord, but he will not answer them. He will hide his face from them at that time because they have made their deeds evil. Again, that judgment of the Lord answering them in kind. And then 5 through 8, this is about the prophets. Thus says the Lord concerning the prophets who lead my people astray, who cry peace when they have something to eat, but declare war against him who puts nothing into their mouths. Therefore it shall be night to you without vision and darkness to you without divination. The sun shall go down on the prophets and the day shall be black over them. The seers shall be disgraced and the diviners put to shame. They shall all cover their lips, for there is no answer from God. But as for me, I am filled with power, with the spirit of the Lord, and with justice and might to declare to Jacob his transgression and to Israel his sin. So Micah's uh, marking himself out, obviously, as different from these false prophets, right? He's a true prophet of the Lord. Uh, and then in 9 through 12, there's a kind of summary uh, it reiterates again the failure of the civil leaders uh, of the religious leaders it brings the priests in um, to this group now also uh, and it ends with a picture ultimately of complete destruction um, for the land uh, in <clears throat> verse 12 therefore because of you zion shall be plowed as a field jerusalem shall become a heap of ruins and the mountain of the house a wooded height Ultimately, um, it's just going to be nothing, right? It's going to be as ab abandoned. The, the temple mount will be abandoned. Um, it's going to just be plowed as, you know, after a field is done, nothing left. And that's uh, what's coming for them because of their sin. But, again, that's not the last word, right? And notice the dramatic contrast in the very next verse. <clears throat> so keep in mind here, these words, you know, Zion shall be plowed as a field. The mountain of the house is going to be a wooded height. It's just like abandoned woods. Chapter four, verse one, it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and it shall be lifted up above the hills and people shall flow to it. And many nations shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between many peoples, and shall decide disputes for strong nations far away, and they shall beat their swords into plowshares, and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war any more. 
but they shall sit every man under his vine and under his fig tree, and no one shall make them afraid, for the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken. For all the peoples walk, each in the name of its God, but we will walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever. Massive contrast, right? Um, and this is the same thing that Dr. Master mentioned in Isaiah. And uh, we don't have time to look at it, but if you go compare Isaiah chapter 2, verses 1 to 5 to these verses, they're almost identical. So some have wondered, did they borrow from each other? Did the Lord just give them the exact same words? Who knows? Could have been either of those, right? But it's clear. It's the same message. This is what the Lord is going to do in the latter days. Some, some point in the future, right? Is that now? Is that now? Are we in the latter days? Good question. Yes and no. (laughs) To some extent, yes. Uh, I think we don't have time to go into this a whole lot, but there's an aspect of this that I think comes with the coming of Christ as the Messiah, with his death and resurrection. There is a sense in which this has already begun, because this is a picture of, of the kingdom of God and God's people under God's rule. Right? And there is an element in which some of that is true, but it's not yet consummated until Christ returns in the end. That's kind of the quickest I can give without getting too far off track from some of this. Now in this passage, um, from the standpoint of the original hearers, um, they're just seeing it. This is something in the future. Right? This is something that will come with the Lord's Messiah. Um, And it's only looking back now from the New Testament perspective that we recognize that this is Christ. It's talking about the the reign of Christ. And we'll get more to that actually in chapter 5 also. I have another question. Okay. Can we cut it off? Uh, Go for it. You can just cut it off if you want. It seems to indicate, though, that Jesus' kingly reign includes rulership over the nations, a civil dimension, whereby his law should govern the nations. Comment. <clears throat> I don't know that it's talking specifically about uh, civil rule nations. Um, I think the aspect that in which that's fulfilled already is is the sense in which I mean, in some ways, we're a fulfillment of this. Even as we sit here looking at His Word, right? We are. I mean, are we not at this moment um, hearing the law of the Lord from His Word and listening and? allowing it to work in our hearts by faith, right, to, to follow Christ. So um, I'm guessing none of us here are uh, of Jewish descent. I could be wrong. Um, but there's a sense in which we're, we're part of that in that sense, right, uh, not in the full culmination uh, of the, the kingdom of Christ, you know, worldwide, sub- subduing all of his enemies, um, you know, visibly. Does that make sense? That's all I can say for now. Yeah. further so does this not show why the Jews probably believed that they were going to rule again or be top nation or whatever if they didn't understand the spiritual application? Yes. Yeah, that's exactly right. Um, when, uh, and we'll see here in just a minute, you know, even in, in Matthew 2, when Matthew quotes from chapter 5 about uh, Bethlehem, <clears throat> the Messiah coming from Bethlehem, and the whole picture of the New Testament is that the Jews are expecting someone to come and save them from Roman rule, right, and restore the earthly kingdom of Israel. Um, but the New Testament pic- picture is actually, that's not what's going to happen. It's Christ 
ruling and reigning over his people and triumphing over sin. Uh, and ultimately, it's the, the kingdom of heaven, not this earthly kingdom that the Jews were expecting as the, the final fulfillment of these verses. Yeah, that's right. Okay, other questions about that? <laughs> these are all really big topics that we could spend a whole class time on any of these questions, actually. Uh, and there are different understandings and interpretations of them. Uh, but that's, that's the way I uh, see these things. Um, okay, so there is this massive contrast, though, right, between the judgment that's going to come and this picture that the, the Micah gives of, of the latter days. Uh, and there's this uh, mention in verse 4 of every uh, person sitting under his vine and under his fig tree uh, it's a picture, it's a common Old Testament picture or image of, of peace and prosperity. Um, and again, I think ultimately it's not pointing to a physical, you know, Israel is going to be in the land uh, and every single one of them is going to have their own fig tree. Um, but it's ultimately a picture of the peace and prosperity that comes in the new heavens and the new earth uh, for God's people under Christ. <clears throat> um, and then in um, verses, let's see, verse 6, we see that uh, the Lord's going to assemble. So in that day, declares the Lord, I will assemble the lame and gather those who have been driven away and those whom I have afflicted. Notice that the Lord is the one who did this, uh, but he's going to gather them and assemble them. Those are the same uh, verbs that were used back in chapter 2, verse 12, assemble, gather, um, Again, in, in uh, 7 and in 8, we see this kind of shepherd language. The lame I will make the remnant and those who were cast off a strong nation and the Lord will reign over them and from this time forth and forevermore. And you, O tower of the flock, hill of the daughter of Zion, to you shall it come. The former dominion shall come, kingship for the daughter of Jerusalem. So that, again, there's this shepherd slash king motif going on, right? Uh, those two things kind of brought together. Um, in moving into uh, verses 9, chapter 4, verse 9, and into chapter 5, we're going to see that Micah speaks of a restoration now being accomplished. So the first part of 4 is kind of the restoration promised, and then this is going to sort of explain how it's going to, not exactly how it's going to play out, but there's going to be these um, passages of this is what it looks like now. So if you look even at uh, chapter 4, verse 11, now many nations are assembled against you, saying, let her be defiled and let our eyes gaze upon Zion. But they do not know the thoughts of the Lord. They do not understand his plan, that he has gathered them as sheaves to the threshing floor. So the nations are assembled against Judah and they don't understand they're actually carrying out the Lord's will all this time, and he ultimately is going to judge them as well. Um, that's the picture. Arise and thresh, O daughter of Zion, for I will make your horn iron, and I will make your hooves bronze. So there's a picture of uh, Judah as trampling her enemies in verse 13. <clears throat> um, so there's this you know back and forth idea of, of this is what it's like now, this is what it will be like. Um, and then we see, I want to take a little bit of time here in chapter 5, and we're getting a little low on time, 
Um, but this restoration ultimately will come through this shepherd king. So in, uh, in chapter 5, verse 1, again, we see, Now muster your troops, O daughter of troops. Siege is laid against us. With a rod they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. This is talking about what they're going to do to the current king of, of Israel. Um, but you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, verse 2, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah. From you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Therefore he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. And he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they shall dwell secure, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. So now we see, again, um, uh, an emphasis on this idea of a king who is a shepherd, right? The one who, uh, a ruler, notice he comes from Bethlehem, which is the city of David. So allusions to him fulfilling the covenant promise to David that one of his descendants would sit on his throne forever, right? Um, I mentioned in Matthew 2, Verse 6, this is quoted, and it's um, when the wise men uh, tell Herod where they thought the Messiah would be born. They thought it would be in Bethlehem. So even the the people of Jesus' day recognize that this is likely foretelling the birthplace of the Messiah. Um, But he's also going to be from ancient origins, right? Uh, It says that uh, he is... <clears throat> who's coming forth is from old, from of old, from ancient days. Could be a reference, again, just to his Davidic lineage, but also most likely a reference to his eternal origins. Um, but in any rate, God's promises, his covenantal promises to David will be fulfilled, despite the fact that the nation is going to go into exile for, th- for their sins, right? And this is the pattern we see really throughout Scripture. Um, there are moments in, in the history of God's people where it appears that the covenant promises are in doubt, at risk of being unfulfilled in some way, right? Um, you see it even from the beginning with Abraham. I mean, he's old and doesn't have any children, right? The Lord always provides a way to fulfill those promises. And this is the Lord saying, that I will keep my promise to David, even though the nation's going into exile, nobody's going to be really left. There is going to be a king who comes from his lineage, from his very town, but from of old, who will, and verse 4 says, uh, he will stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord. They shall dwell secure, for now he shall be great, to the ends of the earth. And this again goes back to kind of what, what Nathan was asking about, where in a sense this this is starting to be fulfilled with the spread of the gospel around the globe, right, to all peoples and nations. Uh, and yet there is a sense in which it's not fully fulfilled because there is a day when ultimately the whole world will recognize that Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of Micah chapter 5. Um, <clears throat> more if we keep reading we're actually going to see 
don't really have time to go into all of this, but there is more intermingling of this judgment and restoration of a remnant. Uh, we see that in 7 through 15. Um, and then in chapter 6, Micah is going to start a new section with, again, the word here. So chapter 6, verse 1. Hear what the Lord says. Uh, he's going to announce God's indictment on his people. There's language of a lawsuit. So if you look at uh, plead your case before the mountains, verse 1. Hear the indictment of the Lord, verse 2. Uh, there's this, this lawsuit that is coming against them. And um, he recounts, uh, the Lord is going to recount his saving acts for his people. He's going to talk about in verse um, 4, the rescue from Egypt. Verse 5, he mentions um, Balak, king of Moab, who wanted Balaam to curse the Israelites, but the Lord turned it into blessing. Right? So the Lord is highlighting the fact that even when, his, when God's people's enemies try to curse them, the Lord is, is, wants to bless them. He doesn't want to curse them. <clears throat> um, he wants to do them good. Um, the problem, though, is they have fundamentally misunderstood their relationship to him, even after these things have happened. So uh, we do want to take just a few minutes. We'll probably end, end with this, actually, and look at verses 6, 7, and 8 of chapter 6. So... Uh, Verse 8, actually, in some ways, could be a, considered a key verse for understanding Micah. Let me just read it. Uh, this first section, before I read it, though, picture it this way. This is not just outward religious ceremony with a lack of heart uh, knowledge or a lack of heart, uh, you know, aligning with the Lord. Um, think of it this way and recognize as we look at 6 and 7 that the, think of it as the, the Israelites are, are kind of, understanding these things as almost a, a fee of entry into God's presence or like what's the price what's the price I have to give to be close to God essentially is what you can think of it as and you notice that the price goes up almost as if they're trying to bargain or negotiate with the Lord what do I have to give to get on your good side with what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high shall I come before him with burnt offerings with calves a year old Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams? Notice the increase. With ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? So again, this is not just, you know, outward piety. This is actually like I'm trying to earn. I want to buy God's favor. Uh, what's, the, what's it going to cost me? Uh, verse 8, though. Micah says, He has told you, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God? Uh, you can actually, you know, think of this verse as highlighting, you know, in those three things, what's the problem with Israel and Judah right now? Rather than doing justice, they're full of injustice, right, and exploitation. Rather than, than loving kindness, they actually love evil and, and violence, um, and obviously, rather than walking humbly with God, they're, they're presuming on him. Um, the, the Lord ultimately had called Israel to a relationship with himself. He had saved them, set them apart as a witness, a light to those around them. This is what fellowship with God looks like. This is what it means to be the people of God. Uh, and they were to be like him, right? Uh, we saw last week um, at the end, right? And I'm going to jump there just quickly, seven uh, chapter 7, verse 18. Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. Notice that, that similarity, right, of loving kindness. 
because he delights in steadfast love, he will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. You will show faithfulness to Jacob and steadfast love to Abraham, as you have sworn to our fathers from the days of old. So ultimately the issue is this. God had set them apart to be his people and to be like him and to show to the world, this is what I am like and this is what my people are like. They had completely rejected that and had become like the rest of the world. And so he was going to judge them for that. Um, but ultimately, he will restore that remnant uh, and save a people who he will, <clears throat> um, he will live with them and they will walk humbly with him, with him uh, and, and follow his, his word and, and follow his shepherd king. All right, it's 1042. Uh, we could have talked about all kinds of other things, but hopefully you have a, a helpful understanding uh, of the book of Micah and its place, uh, how it fits with the message that Isaiah is also bringing. Um, feel free if you have questions to stick around afterwards and we can chat when we pray. You'll be dismissed. <laughs> Gracious Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your word, and we thank you for Micah, uh, for his uh, courage to bring this difficult message of judgment that was coming, but also uh, we thank you for that message of hope that rings throughout the, uh, the message that you are a forgiving God, you love, uh, you are full of steadfast love and kindness, you love to forgive sin, uh, even as, as Micah said, um, you do not retain your anger forever, you will tread our iniquities underfoot, cast our sins into the depths of the sea, uh, what a wonderful picture, Lord, of the forgiveness that is found in Jesus Christ, and we pray that you would uh, help us to be those who uh, do justice and who love kindness, and who walk humbly with you, our God. We thank you that through Christ this is possible, and we pray all this in his name. Amen.